Uh, we're not going to read a text uh, this morning. I'm going to kind of have, there's going to be scripture littered throughout uh, this morning. Um, we, we started basically just a three-week uh, sermon series um, on some vision things for this year. We started on January 1st, recapping kind of our need as God's people to live with gratitude, um, to mark the things that God has done that are good, uh, to rejoice and give praise to God for those good things, but also in the midst of that to yearn and hope that the sorrows that we experienced in this past year might be turned to joy. And then about two weeks ago, um, we talked about the need to uh, lighten our burdens, um, the easy yoke that Jesus gives to us so that all our action as, uh, as God's people might be light might be easy, that we might exist in a a space of active rest. That's how we're to live in the wake of the last few years, not straining under the weight of our languishing, not striving to stop being fatigued, not mechanizing our rest so we can operate most optimally. No, coming to Jesus and receiving a light yoke. A yoke, yes, A mission, yes, but a yoke and a mission that is caught up in God's rest. We don't have to strive like the runner Harold Abrams. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide and ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. No, instead, we join with Eric Liddell in taking on the easy yoke of Jesus. I I run to feel God's pleasure. Active, yes. Striving to earn, no. Restful, yes. And today, we are going to maybe get help in an active rest through being a faithful friend. I want to ask you a couple questions to begin. This comes from a writer named Alan Jacobs. First, first question, who do you know other than members of your immediate family, whose death would utterly devastate you, leaving you emotionally in a state like that of uh, young Augustine in the Confessions when he loses his closest friend and he says, my heart was darkened over with sorrow, and whatever I looked at was death. Now, I acknowledge this is a morbid test, But it definitely focuses our mind. Are there people with whom you have identified so deeply that without them, you cannot imagine how you might carry on? Those would be friends. Second, the second test is less dark, but similar revealing. Who, other than family stands in relation to you such that when he or she is not doing well, you cannot possibly be doing well either. If your friend's in the hospital, you wish to be there too. If your friend is upset over something, you find yourself distracted and upset. This test too reveals who your friends are. How you doing? You see, 
we can see exactly what has gone wrong in our contemporary practice of friendship. We live in an age obsessed with individual freedom and autonomy. Another way to say this, we are or think we are our own. And because of this, we've become less willing to engage in activities that place involuntary constraints upon us. And friendship, like marriage and procreation, is one of those activities that places constraints on us. Not only does deep friendship constrain our time, it also constrains our character insofar it depends on virtues whose standards we ourselves do not create. Like genuine friendship requires patience, forgiveness, toleration, constancy, honesty, self-sacrifice, humility, and care. These aren't qualities that we're born with. They require cultivation, intentional effort. City Press, we both need friends and we need to be friends. And real friendship is both discovered and cultivated. So in 2023, one of my desires for you as a church is for you to grow in friendship. How can we do that? We're going to look at four building blocks this morning to cultivating friendship. They come mostly from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, words of wisdom for Padawans, right? That's all of us, by the way. We are to give a proverb our ear. The the response to the instruction of a proverb, when you get a proverb, you're to listen. And not just listen, but make yourself available to the instruction to be, in other words, teachable. And the context for the whole book, the whole conglomeration of gathered proverbs, is relationships, friendships. Where are these proverbs most likely to be lived out or should be lived out in the context of a relationship. So we'll start with Proverbs 18, 24. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read these uh, verses to you. A man of many, and and as you know, like Proverbs kind of come uh, unbunched, like, right? They're not like, the, the context of the proverb is in the very act of, it's given, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Like, that's the context that we give when we talk about Proverbs. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, there is a difference, in other words, between a companion and a friend, and also a brother that can be more, uh, 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 a brother that is more than a friend. Now, we notice what the proverb says. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If a brother is obligated to the role of friend, by blood, and that is some sort of safety net, right? If they are, that you're, you can rely on your family because they're blood bond to you. A person with companions uh, can mean, with many companions, can mean ruin. A person with just blood relatives, well, that's good. That's good. That might be better than a person with many companions, but your blood relatives, what? They don't choose you. You don't choose them. Am I right? We were talking about this this morning, like there is this, this idea about your life that is like, like a tossed blanket. You're, you're tossed into your life. You don't have choice about who 
you're tossed into with, and neither do they necessarily. But friendships are chosen. A friend who chooses. The proverb is saying there is something about a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Why is that significant? Because the friend decides, covenants to be your friends. This is a friend that sticks closer to the brother. And this is point one. The the first kind of building block to cultivating friendship is devotion. Devotion. C.S. Lewis says a companion is someone who I get together with to hunt and to eat. It's like a friendship built around doing something, enjoying something, a shared hobby, a shared occupation, a shared interest. You talk about parenting, mountain biking, some new show you're watching. This companionship, Lewis said, it is, however, uh, only the matrix of friendship. It is often called friendship, and many people, when they speak of their friends, mean only their companions. It's not friendship in the sense I give to the word, Lewis says. He goes on. Friendship arises out of mere companionship. So the place of starting a friendship is companionship. When two or more of the companions discover they have in common some insight or interest or even taste, which others in their friend group might not share, and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like this. Oh, what? You too. I thought I was the only one. Now this is the opening, the start. But forging this over time involves right attitudes, right goals, using those conversations as a starter in a context to facilitate something deeper, namely friendship. Proverbs 26 says the following, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, But a faithful man, who can find? A friend is faithful. They are devoted. They are faithful. They don't just proclaim their love as steadfast. They display it as steadfast. How? This is how I would like you to think about it this morning. Is they become entangled with you. Jonathan Four wrote a piece entitled, How Not to Be Alone for the New York Times. And here's what he says. A funny thing happened. We began to prefer the diminished substitutes. Here's what he means by that. It's easier to make a phone call than to schlep to see someone in person. Leaving a message on someone's machine or phone is easier than having a phone conversation. You can say what you need to say without a response. Hard news is easier to leave. It's easier to check in without becoming entangled. So we begin calling and texting when we knew no one would pick up or answer. Shooting off an email is easier still because one can hide behind the absence of vocal inflection. And of course, there, of course there's no ca- chance of accidentally catching someone. And texting is even easier as the expectation for articulateness is further reduced and another shell is offered to hide and each step forward has made it easier just a little to avoid the emotional work of being present, to convey information rather than humanity. The problem, for says with accepting, with preferring diminished substitutes, is that over time, we human beings become diminished substitutes. We become people 
who are used to saying little and people who are used to feeling even less. We settle for diminished substitutes. We proclaim faithful love according to the proverb, but we aren't faithful. A faithful friend is devoted. They entangle themselves with another person of their choosing. They stick close. There is a determination to stick close. That word we get, uh, we use is covenant. Making a covenant means making a promise with yourself before God to do a certain thing, to be at a certain place. You always, by the way, make covenants where? In the dark. You promise without knowing what will come. Now, we get a biblical example of of a covenantal friendship in the story of David and Jonathan. It's a well-known story, right? Jonathan, the king's son, King Saul's son, makes covenant with David to be his friend. 1 Samuel 18. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan's friendship to David was more than words. It was covenantal. It was faithful. It was true. He takes his robe and his armor, and he gives it to David as the king's son to David, the would-be king, a treasonous act, by the way, as a symbolic act to display his devotion. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find one. You also see this, I think, in Lord of the Rings, right? I don't give a lot of Lord of the Rings. It's too easy is what one of my friends say say about sermon illustrations. But like Samwise Gangee is the faithful friend of Frodo, right? He says, you can trust us, Frodo, to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you, you yourself keep it. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a, great, a good deal about the ring. We are hor- horribly afraid, but we are coming with you and following you like hounds. Sam Wise, the faithful friend to the bitter end, facing troubles together, not going out without a word. We will stick with you. We will follow you with, like hounds. This is devotion. And that devotion involves what? It involves time. It involves constraint. Sam Wise is constrained to the mission of being Frodo's friend. And everything else that this season of his life reflects that. We can't be a friend who sticks closer to a brother or sister to everyone. We are human. We are constrained. The reality of saying yes to something means saying no to another, and we have to be constrained if we're going to be devoted friends. Perhaps this is our friendship. uh, Perhaps our friendships might start over a meal, or a common interest, or a similar season of life, but this companionship grows to friendship when you become entangled in each other's life. When there is something of an obstacle presented that keeps you from sticking close, and then when you move past this and stick close 
anyway. That's what the Proverbs are telling us, is what makes a devoted friend. And that leads to the second building block, thoughtfulness. When you don't just hang, but you take risk to become entangled, you become thoughtful. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. According to this proverb, a constructive wounding, this is the mark of faithful friendship. It's an expression of devotion, an expression of love that refuses to hide for the sake of convenience. Now let me stop here and deal with this first in the positive. A friend refuses to hide. They are thoughtful. In the positive, this means a friend becomes entangled in your life by remembering you. This this is the assumption of the proverb, by the way. The assumption is that the friend is thoughtful. They they remember you. They remember your story. Maybe they remember your birthday, your anniversary. They're entangled to the degree they know you and are hopefully known by you, so they deal with you in an understanding way. They encourage you when you need encouragement. They spur you on because of their thoughtful devotion. But it isn't just praise that you and I need. The left hand of encouragement has to be met with the right hand of exhortation. In fact, an enemy whose praises are profuse is just that, according to the proverb. An enemy, a faithful friend, will become entangled with us to the point of giving faithful wounds to us and open rebukes. Open rebukes are are just that. They're open. They're not closed. They're not kept to oneself or shared with a number of other friends, they're open and given and shared to the friend they're entangled with. It's always constructive. The end is meant to build up. What this means is that silence in the face of friend's folly is not an act of love. Now hear this, all of you, but especially those of you who are teenagers. Like, Your friends should be friends who become entangled with you to the degree that when they see you in folly, they respond to you with faithful, true love and devotion and speak words of life to you, words of wisdom to you. Now, church, I want you to just think about this. When was the last time you had a friend do this? where you didn't hear about them talking about it with someone else, but they actually said it to you, where they openly rebuked you, where they spoke words that wounded you in the right way. I had a friend uh, who was in pastoral ministry. He was in one of uh, my group with me and and four other pastors. And uh, we were in California we had listened to each other's sermons and we're kind of giving reports back to each other on what we thought about each other's sermons. And somewhere in that and what we were talking about that week, the group of us looked at our friend and said to him, we don't think you should be a pastor anymore. He hadn't failed morally. He was virtuous, good, upstanding. But we, we told him, like, you had been, you've been wounded so much from 
your congregation, you can hear in your sermons how you've resigned yourself. Those are not easy words to give or hear. Now, this pastor, man, he was amazing. God's spirit was with him, with us, and he received those words. And you know, down the road, he ended up like agreeing with that direction we'd given him. And he, he left, at least temporary, at least he is still right now, left pastoral ministry to do something else. Friendship is entangled by thoughtful encouragement and exhortation. This is why the proverb says, iron sharpens iron. And one man or woman sharpens another. There is a thoughtful sharpening. Sharpening prepares an instrument for use. When we are thoughtful with our encouragement and our our exhortation, we are sharpening one another for what we will face together in the world. In other words, we're building one another up, and building up involves a thoughtfulness and discernment to know when encouragement is needed and when exhortation is, and this is why it requires wisdom. And that leads us to number three, openness. The third building block of friendship is openness. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friends are open. We're honest. We, we bear ourselves. We get entangled in being open so we might receive what? Well, according to the proverb, mercy. Do you see how this proverb says it? If we conceal our transgression, a transgression would be crossing the line, violating God's law. It's our failures. It's our sins. It's our mistakes. If we conceal those, we can't prosper. We can't flourish. But if we confess and forsake, we obtain mercy. When I read this, I think about, this is something I've told you before, or this image. It's called the soul toupee. The term comes from the writer Tim Kreider. Tim was writing about a deceased friend. His friend's name was Skelly. Apparently, Skelly was quite the character, reputed in their circles for stories that he told about himself, most of which were not in the strictest, most literal-minded sense of the word, true. The way Kreider describes him, the guy was highly, a highly creative teller of tall tales. He was lovable in the extreme, not to mention a self-described Christian. After he died, Tim and his friends learned some rather hard and disconcerting truths about Skelly's mental health. And reflecting on what made this unconventional friend tick, Kreider introduces us to the term soul to pay. He says this, knowing things about someone is not the same thing as knowing them. As far as I know, none of Skelly's friends cared about the facts of his life that embarrassed him so deeply. If anything, we were just sorry he never felt the need to tell, that he ever felt the need to tell us these ridiculous stories. It implied on some level he felt badly about himself as if he didn't believe we'd like him for who he really was. What someone's lies reveal about them, aspirations to being an accomplished writer, fantasies of an exotic history of a co- in a cosmopolitan family, are always sadder than the fact of the lies themselves. Years ago, a friend of mine and I used to frequent a market in Baltimore where we would eat oysters and drink very large beers 
from 32-ounce styrofoam cups. One of the regulars there had the worst toupee in the world. It was a comical little wig, taped in place on the top of his head. Looking at this man and drinking our VLBs, very large beers, we developed the concept of the soul toupee. And hear this. Each of us has a soul toupee. The soul toupee is that thing about ourselves which we are most deeply embarrassed by and like to think we have cunningly concealed from the world, but which in fact is pitifully obvious to everyone who knows us. Contemplating one's own soul toupee is not an exercise for the faint-hearted. Most of the time, other people don't get away Uh, don't get why our soul soul toupee is any big deal or a cause of such evident deep shame to us, but they can tell that it is because of our inept, transparent efforts to cover it up, which only call more attention to it and to our self-consciousness about it. And so they gently pretend not to notice it. Meanwhile, we're standing there with our little rigid, spun-like square of hair pasted to our heads thinking, ha, I got him fooled. City Press, each of you has a soul to pay. It's the thing that keeps you from being known. What is it? I have deep insecurities. I have lots of failures. Friendship means being entangled to the point that we share and take off the toupee and reveal the things we're ashamed of. There's an openness and vulnerability required of friendship. Why? Because as Dave Zoll says, friendship is the term we use to describe what? A non-performative relationship. Now think about that for a second. How are you with your friends? What performance are you giving? Being a friend means we stop faking it, stop performing. We are open with our soul to pays. In the word of the proverb, we confess. If I'm utterly convinced that I need a soul to pay to traffic in this difficult world, to be a friend and have friends, then the only way for me to be free of it is for someone else with verifiable judge status to tell me I am acceptable without it. I need someone to tell me that all this cover-up work is not only worthless, but silly and ultimately impossible. If someone were to tell me that, I would be able to take off my soul toupee and get on with life as an accepted, bald soul. Oh, sneak peek to the end, Jesus enables you and I to do this. But in lieu of Jesus, so does a faithful friend. Kreider and his friends who drank VBLs tried to do this with Skelly. And they composed a tribute to their friend at one point called the Ballad of Tumbleweed Skell. Here's how Tim describes sharing this with Skelly. I wish you could have seen his face as he heard it. He was so abashed and flustered at finding himself the center of attention, but he was helplessly grinning, laughing uproariously, and clapping his hands at a good lyric, quickly recovering himself to catch the next one. It was like watching the face 
of the guests of honor at a celebrity roast. Now, if you would have been there last night, this would have been you. You would have known this. Torn between chagrin and delight. Kreider says, I'm glad he got to hear that song. He died less than a year later. It was our way of letting him know in the most affectionate, mockingly way possible. We've got your number, man. And he loved it. Personal model notwithstanding, for all his secrecy, his fear of being seen, he was touched that we observed him so closely and with such love. He loved that we knew him. This is one reason people believe in God, because we want someone to know us truly all the way down, even the worst of us. Even the biggest secrets that you're carrying right now. Shame melts. Shame gets melted by being known. Now there's several Proverbs that help us here. Proverbs 17, 19. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A friend can only be open to the degree that you and I are safe friends. Notice, covering offense is obscuring, hiding. The, the soul to pay that perhaps everyone sees isn't exploited with cheap gossip or laughs. In fact, if we weren't gentle with each other's soul to pays, our friendship, the proverb said, is cut or torn, divided. Proverbs 21, uh, 25, 11, and 20, like apples of gold and settings of silver, so is a right word spoken in the right circumstance. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Our openness and thoughtfulness lead us what? To a presence in our friend's life that heals and regulates. Do you see this, right? A right word spoken at the right time is something, according to the proverb, that is priceless. A song of comfort provides warmth and rest. Now, I'm going to get a little scientific here for a second. This is rarely a good look for me. A revelation of my soul to pay, perhaps. There is this thing called the social engagement system. And the way this thing works, I'm, going, I'm, I'm not even close to being done, so you better strap in. Maybe I'll speed up at some point. The way this, thing's, this thing works is when you find yourself wanting to fight or run or shut down by a conflict, a fight, a life circumstance. Maybe you find yourself in this place of intense anxiety and you start digging into what's causing it and then it just, it just makes you want to give up. Or maybe your soul toupee gets a little crooked and someone points it out to you and you find yourself wanting to, to punch them in the nose. In these moments, we are upset, dysregulated. And where do we feel it? We feel it in our bodies. Now, maybe it starts in your gut and travels upward. You, you get all warm and bubbly like a Sprite bottle that's been given too many Mentos, right? Or maybe it starts in your chest and there's this like, like pressure, or your head starts to throb. 
And you feel like the, your blood rushed there. And you might fall over. And in that moment, you respond with fight or flight. You either run for cover or you open up a can. Now, do you know why you do this? It's your nervous system. It's built in. It's called polyvagal theory. It's in your bodies so you might survive. Like if you see a bear, the nervous system kicks in and tells you to freeze or maybe make all sorts of noise and fight. Now, Danette texted me uh, last week when I was in Nebraska and said, she sent me this like sound and it sounded like raccoons like scratching in our abandoned fireplace. And so I had all these pictures in my mind. I don't know if you saw the TikTok where the guy, the, the kid is outside on, a, on the front door and he, the little guy, he's a little guy, gets attacked by this like raccoon and he starts screaming for his mom and the mom comes out the door, flies it open and grabs the raccoon and starts <laughs> and throws it. Like that's what I envisioned, right? That's polyvagal theory, Right? We also do this with our soul toupees. Like when we get into a conflict with friend, spouse, child, it's why things always go the same way when those conflicts happen. Like why you always deal with conflict the same way. You develop tracks in your brain that either habitually flee or fight. So what do we do? Why do we need friends? Because friends are the social engagement system that help us deal with these things, to tolerate the stress, the discomfort, the conflict. When we feel compromised, we look for the face of a friend. And when they smile at us or are gentle towards us, it remakes our brain chemistry. Yesterday, Deke played his first basketball game. Man, I'm glad I'm an old parent. That's all I can say. So we get to, like, we're, we're, it, the game's really, really late, like this sermon is. And um, we get there, and we're waiting, waiting, waiting for the game to start. And you can kind of, like, see his little body, like, he is dealing with the anxiety and trying to figure out how to process it, right? And so then they, we, they rush out onto the court and start doing practice, and right at that minute, man, the tears, right? Now, if this was Jed, he would have got up fight for me, to be honest, wrongly. So I I was trying to think, okay, what do I do? So I get down and look at him in the face, right? And I say, hey, man, buddy, your sister, she plays college soccer. And you know what she did her very first game? Just what you want to do. She wanted to run and hide. And so he kind of like, you can tell he's still like teary, but I said, look, look, they're practicing. Turn around. And he did. Now, he cried two more times through the game. <laughs> you see, so our, as friends, we, we become this warm coat, this apples of gold and settings of silver, when we regulate our friends. This is why you and I need friends. It can't just be our spouses. It can't just be you and your kids. 
It can't be your parents. When you are in flight or fight mode, you need a friend to cover you, to be a safe place to be healed. This is physiological. You experience this in your body. Those feelings you have are real in your body. And the only way to retrain your brain is to find a friend that accepts you with love. Now, how do you do this with a God who is invisible? Now, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, but one way God provides is the face of a friend. And this leads to the last point, sacrificial love. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend that sticks closer than a brother is a friend that's born for adversity. How do you know a friend will be there for you, loving you at all times? Well, they show up when? When it costs them something. In John 15, Jesus is nearing the end of his time with his disciples. So he begins sharing with them those things one shares right before they're about to have a parting. Important words, vital words. In John 15, he says, This is my commandment that I give you, brothers, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus calls his disciples friends, and how do they know Jesus is their friend? That he loves them. He lays down his life for them. What I want you to see is that the call to friendship, just like the call to marriage and parenting, is the call to come and die. Discipleship, by the way, is friendship. You can't have disciples who are friends, and you can't have a disciple maker who isn't your friend. And the prerequisite of friendship is sacrificial love. And maybe that's why it's so difficult for us to be friends and to have them. Yet it's so vital because life is found in them. There are no lone rangers in this journey. You need friends and you need to be a friend. And friendship is always entangled with real people, with real soul to pays, always. Because friendship is the gospel with flesh on it. It is a place where we can be known and where we can know one another and still be loved. Because it's founded on the work of Jesus for us. We're free to be our bald selves and the friend can become a powerful means of, uh, of that for another person. The embodying work of Jesus, as we give one-way love, as we say you are loved and never rejected because of Jesus, the friend becomes a means of grace to another person, a living witness to the work of Christ. This is what Bonhoeffer says, Christianity means community through Jesus and in Jesus. And this is kind of what Jesus was getting at, by the way. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus. What does this mean? It means, first, that a Christian needs others because of Jesus. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus. This is what Jesus is offering the disciples. You belong to me, and because you belong to me, you belong to one another. You need each other, in other words, Jesus says, because of me. And the best way to come to one another and be friends is through me. We need others because Jesus, and we come to others through Jesus, and friendship then is always entangled in grace and another person and Jesus. 
when we avoid the work of being present, when we stop being human, we become diminished substitutes. This is what sin does to a friendship. We can't be known. We can't connect. We can't know. So we settle for substitutes, the fleeting for the permanent. And in the process, we lose not only friends, but an aspect of our humanity. And the Proverbs really are that. They are wisdom for how to live as what? Human beings. They aren't gospel, but they're guides for being real in human life. And they say a friend is how we are to be humans, to be entangled with other humans. And biblical friendship, real friendship, is entangled. There's more that can be said about that, but I want to end with this. <clears throat> Three years ago, um, my friend uh, Ryan, I didn't know Ryan when he moved here. He uh, came from Louisville. He was a pastor's kid. And what I knew first about, what I learned first about Ryan is that he loved movies. And so he became around our house, everyone started calling him Movie Ryan. And that's still what he gets called. My kids call him Movie Ryan. Danette calls him Movie Ryan. And so that shared act of movies got us to start to be friends. Companions became friends. How did that happen? Well, there was this like way about Ryan that he doesn't think he has, but he has, where he just lingers. He just hangs. He's a good hang, right? <clears throat> this comes from uh, Wynn Collier's book about Eugene Peterson. This is what Eugene says about himself. He expressed the longing to be unhurried. I want to be a pastor who prays. I want to be reflective and responsive and relaxed in the presence of God so that I can be reflective and responsive and relaxed in your presence. I can't do that on the run. It takes a lot of time. It demands some dis detachment and perspective. I can't just do this by trying harder. I want to be a pastor who has time to be with you in leisurely, unhurried conversations so that I can understand and be a companion with you. My experience of Ryan was that. Just unhurried, present. As a pastor's kid, he understood the life of a pastor. And he was able to then understand the life of my children, and in some ways the life of my wife. And he, he literally, like, not literally, he figuratively moved in to our lives. He was devoted. He was thoughtful. He was open. And he was sacrificial. And today, as he and his wife Katie's last Sunday here, we're going to pray for him at the end. Um... I share that with you because um, I think that's what's, what all of us need to learn. Like this is what I've been trying to learn as your pastor, is how to be less hurried. 
So I can literally try to be like Eugene says, someone who can pray, who can sit, who can be present and be devoted as your friend. You see, friendship has the power to tell this story of redemption. God came to redeem us for himself, showing that friendship doesn't exist just for pleasure, comfort, happiness alone, but exists to communicate God's love and mercy and grace. That's been my experience with Ryan Davis. I'm thankful for it. And that's why you and I, just one of many reasons why we need friends. Let's pray. God, help us uh, today. Um, Help us as we uh, think about being devoted, thoughtful, open, and sacrificial friends. May the gospel hold out hope to us for all the ways we fail to do that. And yet you, Jesus, continue to pursue us and call us your friends. And you show us what a friend does by laying down your life for us. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to receive the forgiveness and grace that you offer us in the act of Jesus on the cross, but that you would also, by your example, urge us forward this year, 2023, to be a church that makes friends. And help us today as we say goodbye to Ryan and Katie. As a church, we are, all of many of us in here, who've experienced them in this way. Um, are both sad and eager and excited for the next chapter of their lives. So bless us today in all of this, we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.